Thank you, Jay. Good morning, church family. This is the day that the Lord has made. Will you rejoice and be glad in it? I will rejoice in the Lord always. I want to share with you this morning that we will be observing the Lord's Supper. And so if you have not had a chance and you are a believer in Jesus Christ and need to um, go and get the elements, you can go to any one of the doors and make sure you have those for the end of our service when we will be participating in the Lord's Supper. Um, we are in our final week of big questions. Uh, four weeks ago, we asked the question, why does God allow evil and suffering? Why does God allow suffering in our lives? And we learned many reasons for that. Some of them are that it helps us to recognize that we live in a fallen world. And it also helps us to rely 100% on the God who created us and sustains us. And another reason is that we can relate to others. We have a relatability when we know the trials that others are going through, that we too can relate to them and comfort them in their time of need. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the question, aren't there many ways to heaven? And of course, we looked at the uniqueness of Christianity and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, that he was 100% human and 100% God, and he alone is the only way to heaven. And then we looked last week at um, the third big question, and that was, um, isn't the Bible out of date? And we learned very quickly that no, the Bible is not out of date. In fact, it's more relevant today than perhaps ever. And it's reliable, it's trustworthy, its words are true, and God calls all of us to hold up the word of God in our living. And so we come finally to this fourth question today, which is, uh, why are Christians judgmental? Why are Christians uh, judgmental? You know, I was at a, uh, a wedding not too long ago. I officiated a wedding for a, a young couple. And after the wedding, of course, us pastors, we get to stay after. You know, I'm going to be doing a wedding on February 4th for Trey and Katie. And I can't wait for the reception. And, uh, and so I was at this reception and I, I got something to eat. and I got my fill, you know, and I was excited. And so I went and um, I started talking to this couple. And uh, we're just talking and we're telling stories and I'm laughing and I'm smiling. And then about five minutes in, uh, the lady looks at me and she goes, I'm sorry. I have to tell you this. You've got a huge piece of broccoli right here in your teeth. Well, I'm telling you right now, I was like, thank you so much. And I ran to the restroom and it was a big piece of broccoli. I'm telling you right now. See, this is what you get for eating healthy. I should have just had the repost. But the point is this, is that was it loving for that woman to share with me that I had broccoli in my teeth? It was. It really was. Imagine if nobody had uh, told me. I'd have gone out the whole night, right? And then I'd have become the, the talk of the reception. Did you see the pastor? He's got broccoli. Yeah, I saw that. He's got broccoli in his teeth. But the implication behind this question, why are Christians judgmental, is that Christianity is intolerant, uh, judgmental, bigoted. In his book, Unchristian, David Kinnaman says Christianity has an image problem. 
Christians are supposed to represent Christ to the world. But the problem is, is that according to a latest report card, something has gone terribly wrong. Using descriptions like hypocritical, insensitive, and judgmental, young Christians between the ages of 20 and 34 now believe that the word judgmental best describes Christians. In fact, a recent Pew Research study revealed that 87% of that same age group would best describe Christianity as judgmental. And if you were to go onto Google and you were to type into the search bar, why are Christians so, on the very first page, if not the very first search results, you will see why are Christians judgmental. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Are all Christians truly judgmental, or are they simply obeying Jesus in the Great Commission? After all, Jesus called all of us to go and tell. We have a mission. We believe that people have a problem, and that spiritual problem cannot be solved on their own. And we are like the, the lady at the reception telling others, you have broccoli in your teeth. And I want to help you by sharing that with you. That comes across in today's society differently than it would have many years ago. In the world of social media that has just taken storm the last 10 to 13 years, we see that social media has kind of built this kind of idea that if you disagree with me on anything, then it's unloving. It's hate-filled. It's not right. But before we throw Christianity out as judgmental, let's just think about the organizations and the millions and millions and millions of Christians who do good things all over the world. Just think about it. The Red Cross, Salvation Army, the YMCA, Samaritan's Purse, Operation Christmas Child, Water Missions, Soup Kitchens, Orphan Centers, Bread of Life, Disaster Relief. No matter where there's a disaster, there are Christian groups that come to help those in need. Now, I don't think all Christians are judgmental. I believe that Christians have an obligation to share the love of Jesus Christ. So it's not the what, but the how. But what are we going to do with this thing where Jesus quotes, is quoted as saying in Matthew chapter 7, Judge not, lest you be judged. Have you ever heard that? How many of you ever heard somebody say that to you? Judge, don't judge me. Don't, well, let's look at what it says there. If you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to look exactly what Jesus said. And we're going to understand the context of why he said that. And then we're going to be able to define, finally, what is judgment. What is judging. So if you're there, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 and following. And if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. This is Jesus speaking. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? 
You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Father, this is your word. Help us to dissect it properly, interpret it appropriately, and then employ it in our daily living. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Do not judge lest you be judged. But if you finish on that, on that note, it sounds pretty convincing. Uh, but the truth is, is that the word judge here is the Greek word for krino. It, that's what it means, krino. And it literally has two specific definitions. One is that you are discerning between good and bad, right and wrong. There's a discernment about you are making a judgment. And then there's a second, which is much more weighty. It's a judgment of a person's destiny. That you're judging them to some eternal destiny. And so what Jesus really has in mind here in the context is he is saying you should judge other person's actions, not their destinies. After all, judgment of destinies is given only to the Son. And so we Christians are to judge others' actions, just not their destinies. And this is, of course, where a lot of Christians go off the rails. They say, if you do this, 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 and then you'll spend eternity apart from God in a place called hell. Of course, that is not what Jesus was teaching. But it's interesting, too, that Bible interpretation, and you know me with my Bible interpretation, it's all about context. It's all about context. Because if you were to pull that verse out of the, the scriptures today and not let the context speak, then you may come up with the wrong interpretation of the Bible. And so what we learn here this morning is this, is that we have to ask ourselves these questions. Who is speaking? To whom is he speaking? When is he speaking? And for what purpose is he speaking? Now, if you know anything about myself, the way I teach the Bible, I try to help us understand what the context is. So I would say we're jumping right into the middle of one of the most famous sermons that Jesus ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. It's chapter three of three chapters full of Jesus's teaching. And Jesus is teaching in one setting here. And if you go all the way back to chapter five, Verse 1, you'll see now that this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at what it says here. Now, when he saw the crowds, in chapter 5, verse 1, now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, it's interesting, if you go back a little farther into the very end of chapter 4, what you see is that, if, if I can paint the picture for us this morning, what you see here is that Jesus has been healing the sick, the lame, the paralytic, the blind. He has been feeding the hungry. He has actually been casting out demons. Jesus is a miracle worker in the Sea of Galilee and the surrounding area. And so therefore, crowds are starting to gather and follow him. So Jesus, of course, then wants to take some time and get away from the crowds after having healed them throughout chapter 4. 
He'll continue his work of healing after the Sermon on the Mount. But it's interesting. You can just see Jesus leaving the crowds and then walking up this mountain. And as he gets up onto this mountain, we don't know what mountain it is. The scripture does not say. It's in Galilee, off the Sea of Galilee, somewhere. But Jesus sits down. And then his followers, you know the followers, Peter, James, John, Matthew, and the disciples, maybe a few other believers. These are people who are already believers in Jesus Christ. They are the church. And so they come and they gather around him. It's in this context that Jesus then gives the Sermon on the Mount. If you flip over to chapter 7, verse 1, you'll see he's continuing his sermon and he is talking to whom? His disciples. He's telling them, do not judge or you too will be judged. You see, it's the keep reading principle. When he says this, he's talking to his disciples, not to outsiders, not to people who are not Christian. He's talking to fellow believers. And so here he says, and it's interesting how he lays this out. He is actually calling them out for being hypocrites. If you're going to judge your brother, make sure that the plank in your own eye is removed. You notice the correlating verse here in verse 5. What does he say? Then... Then you shall, you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your what? Your brother's eye. Brother, the implication here is that they too are believers. You understand that we have the Bible. We have this book. It's basic instructions before leaving earth. I said that last week. We as Christians all agree that this is our authority for faith and practice. And because it's our authority for faith and practice, we must agree on what it says. And when someone does not act in a way that is in accordance with Scripture, then it's our job as a church to correct them lovingly, gently. You who are spiritual, restore one another. This is what the emphasis of Jesus' judgment is all about. He wants us to judge, but he is not telling us to judge the outside world by sending them to some place that we call hell. You understand John 12, 47, Jesus says this, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. Paul said this, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? And James adds this, who are you to judge your neighbor? The concept here is this, is that if you're playing by a set of rules that you as fellow believers understand and follow, then guess what? We should judge one another. But those outside, those who are not Christians, they're playing by a whole different set of rules. Their rules are their own. Their rules are the world's rules. And so for us to try to impose this book on them is not the way God intends it to be. Amen. It's kind of like if I'm playing pickleball and I go out with my friend and I start playing, but I'm playing by one set of rules and he's playing by another set of rules. How's that game going to go? It's not going to work. We're going to be at an impasse. We're going to argue about which rule really 
carries the day. And so that's kind of what Jesus is dealing with here. He is talking about inside the church. Well, I can't move on to the next passage of Scripture without first talking about verse 6. And it says here, dogs and swine, you know, don't throw anything sacred to the dogs or pearls to pigs. It's a reference really to self-righteous followers within the body who are rejecting your loving judgment. And there are Christians within the body who do that. And Jesus is saying, listen, tell them gently, but then move on. Tell them gently, but move on. It's kind of the same concept when he sent them out two by two. And he said, go to the door, let them know of the love of God. And if they do not receive you, then move on to the next. And that's kind of the concept here of what Jesus is saying. So with that, therefore, we understand that this passage is a call for mature Christians to hold each other accountable. But it is not for us to hold the world accountable. Jesus will do that at the end of days. What did Jesus give us to do? To go and tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, the Christian world, the Christian community, has four ways in which we engage our world around us. The first one is we condemn them. You know, condemnation. We express contemptible disapproval of how they are behaving and we sentence judgment. Now I'm here to tell you, there are Christians, there are churches that are very hateful and they, they, they're very vile in the way in which they treat the world. Well, that's not how God called us to be. We, are, we should not condemn them. Well, what about condone? Condone. Should we condone what is happening in the world? Should we condone uh, these things that people do that are morally offensive and obviously in violation of the word of God? Should we just accept the world's sinful behavior? No, we shouldn't do that either. How about compromise? Compromise. You know, if you don't condemn or you don't condone, maybe you're going to compromise. You know how many churches have compromised on this word? They've compromised on the truth. And when you do that, you render the Bible useless. Think about this. If I start to question what is in the Bible on one line, on one line, then I have opened up the rest of the Bible to be in the air. For somebody to say, well, I don't accept this line. Well, over here, I don't like this line. And then we start reading the Bible like Thomas Jefferson, who was famous for having cut out every single miracle because he just didn't believe in the supernatural. Well, that, when you do that, the next thing you know, you're landing at the place where you say, well, maybe Jesus really didn't die. Maybe Jesus really did not raise from the dead. And now all of a sudden, your, your faith is a shell of itself. No, that is not how we are to live. The church needs to stand up with the truth and lovingly let the world know what that truth is. And so therefore, the fourth C, we shouldn't condemn them. We shouldn't condone what they do. We shouldn't compromise. What we should do is converse. We should converse. Engage the world. Show grace. Persuade with God's truth in love. And so let's look at how we're going to do that. Everybody turn to Colossians. It's over to the right. It's in what's called the prison letters. You have Galatians following 2 Corinthians and then Ephesians and then Philippians. And then after Philippians, you have Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. 
And if you've gotten there and are able, please stand with me for the reading of God. See, you get two for one today. <laughs> Folks, this is all I got. It's the Bible. You know? That's all I got. And that's all I need. Amen. Chapter 4 of Colossians, verse 2, reads this way. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Father, this is our marching orders. Help us to be loving and, and follow this pattern that Paul has laid out for the Church of Philosophy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So now as you think about it, now we have a game plan, don't we? Because how do we engage the world around us? We are told to go and tell the good news. Well, it's very easy. The first one there, I've already put it up, is to pray. Paul says, be watchful, be thankful. Ask God to present you opportunities, a door for our message. Of course, the message is the gospel. The gospel means good news. So what is the good news? You realize this is the problem that we run into. And when we were meeting with the deacons a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how to share the gospel. You know, and it, it's true. All of us in this room who are believers, we understand that we are sinful, that we have sin in our lives. There is this disease that we have that we ourselves cannot heal. We have to have a healer. We have to have someone who takes over and covers our sin condition. And so what we often do is we begin with Romans 3.23, which says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, if you tell people that, maybe most people in our world have been conditioned to think that, no, they're basically good. They're basically good people. But you and I know that's not true. You and I know the scripture says that all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And so telling somebody they have broccoli in their teeth is sometimes met with a little resistance. But we all know that somebody told us we had broccoli in our teeth and we have gone to the dentist and we are clean. Jesus has made us whole. Amen. Jesus has removed the sin as far as the east is from the west. Though our sins are as scarlet, he has washed us white as snow. Amen. And because of that, we have this wonderful message of the gospel. So instead of starting with, for, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, maybe start with the one that everybody knows, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever will believe in him shall not perish but have what? Eternal life. You know what verse 17 is? I asked the Wednesday night group this. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. No, God did not send the Son to condemn. He sent the Son to save. Jesus said, I have come for the sick, not for the healthy. I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. 
If you start there, then you say, but we have a problem because we are sinners. And then you can quote Romans 3.23. And then you can say, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. He paid the debt. You see, Jesus paid it all. What? Jesus paid it all. When you and I recognize that Jesus paid it all, then we humbly come to the cross and receive it. Jesus paid it all. And then you can go to that beautiful verse 8-1, Romans 8-1. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is now no condemnation. No condemnation for you. And then, of course, we go to Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. What does it say? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with the mouth that you confess and are saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. That's good news. That's good news. So we are to pray. The second thing is we are to proclaim. Proclaim. What are we to proclaim? Paul here says the mystery of Christ. You'll see that. I, when I read that long, long ago when I first was a Christian, I thought, what is the mystery of Christ? And then I found this amazing tool. The Bible actually answers many of its own Questions. It's crazy. But if you were to cross-reference, that's what I do. I cross-reference. I take mystery of Christ and I look for it. And then it tells me, uh-oh, Paul also addressed the mystery of Christ in Ephesians chapter 3. And you know what it says there? It says that the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members together of one body. And sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Isn't it amazing? So the mystery of Christ is this. is that God didn't come just to save Israel. He came to save the world. Every Gentile. Gentiles are anybody that's not Israelite. You see, all of us are Gentiles. And therefore we are given the privilege of becoming a part of the family of God through the gospel. And so that's the mystery of Christ. Now, how are we to pre preach it or proclaim it? Clearly. <laughs> how many of you ever tried to use churchy terms with a complete non-believer? You know, you've got to be born again. You've got to be shed. The, the blood of Christ needs to cover you. What? You know, think about what that looks like to a person who's completely blind to that worldview. You understand? Here's the simple way to say it. God loves you. But we all have a problem. I do, you do. It's called sin, where we disobey the moral code that God has given to all of us. And because we disobey, the holy God cannot commune with an unholy people. But because he knew that you would not be able to make yourself acceptable to him on your own, guess what he did? He came and paid the penalty for your sin on the cross himself. And therefore, therefore, there is hope. And that hope is found in none other than Jesus Christ. Amen. Won't you trust him? You see, that's proclaiming it clearly. Uh, Jude chapter 1 verse 3, he says, Contend for the faith that was once...
for all entrusted to God's holy people. We have a mission. Paul said to Timothy, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. And so we are to proclaim it. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you have proclaimed the gospel to your family, to your friends, to your co-workers, to your neighbors, to your kids, athletics, sports event, parent attendees? Think about it. There's an opportunity that all of us have to share the good news. Don't you think they will thank you for pointing out the broccoli in their teeth? Yes, they will. And then finally, persuade. Persuade. We are to persuade men. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. You know, wisdom comes from God. Solomon found that out. He asked God for wisdom and God gave it to him in spades. Wisdom is appropriately applied knowledge. When you have the knowledge of the word of God, now God gives you the wisdom to be able to use the word of God to his glory. And when we do that, we make the most of every opportunity. We have to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's a great book written uh, long ago. It's called Just Walk Across the Room. And it really is. If you are in the word of God on a daily basis, if you're in a devotion with God every single day, if you are selling out to God and you're praying, you're being watchful, you're being thankful, you're praying that God will open up a door of opportunity for you, then guess what? God will use that opportunity in your life and the Holy Spirit is the one who will prompt you and say, go speak to that person. This person just mentioned they're going through a divorce. Go speak to that person. Be an encouragement. Be loving. Listen. Be a friend. Show mercy. Show grace. That person just got fired from their job. Oh my gosh, they got laid off. They're a great employee. What happened? How did that happen? Why did that happen? And guess what? You can be that person who steps into their life and you serve as a gap. You are the mediator. You're the one who says, let me introduce you to the one who is overall. He knows all the job openings that there are in the world. He's also the one who gave you the talent to go and find a new job. What about a disease or a sickness that you learn about? God is the one who knew it way before you did. There's an opportunity that you have to show love and mercy and grace to people who so desperately need hope in their world. Why not the church to share that? And then, of course, he says your conversation needs to be full of grace. Give grace. Give grace. Grace is just extending unmerited favor. They may not deserve it, but you're extending it because you have the Holy Spirit that lives in you. Extend grace. And then, of course, seasoned with salt. Look at what it says there. Be seasoned with salt. You know, salt does three things. It preserves. It preserves. It gives you an opportunity to preserve that relationship so that at some point you'll be ready to share that gospel with that friend or loved one. But it's also one that actually gives it a good taste that eventually your contentment, your joy in the midst of your circumstances, whatever they are, people may watch you and they may say, you know what, there's something about them. They're always happy. They're always joyful, no matter what their circumstance. It could be raining, it could be sunshining, and they're happy. Why? What makes them happy? This is the attractiveness of God's children. We are attractive to the world that wants to look at a dark day and be depressed. But we Christians, we see a dark day and we say, we're alive. We're alive. 
and we get to the joy of serving God yet another day. That's why it's interesting that the third reason for salt is that it, it creates thirst. It creates thirst. That's why we ask that who read from Isaiah 55. Come, all of you who are thirsty, come and to the waters. Come to the waters and drink. Jesus said this in Matthew 11. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am humble and gentle in spirit. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God has the answer for you. So now you have to answer everyone. That's what he says there at the end, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And see, Peter said this. Be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Are you prepared? Are you prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have? I'm ready. If anybody ever came up to me and said, Randy, tell me the hope that you have. They'll probably wish they had not asked. Because <laughs> I will go on and on and on and on about the faithfulness of my heavenly Father. So in conclusion, we are to judge our fellow believers by their actions lovingly, encouragingly, but to judge them in truth with love. And we'll leave the judgment of everyone's destiny to the great judge, Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the judge, not us. And so what do we do with our friends Family, co-workers who are not in the faith, we pray, we proclaim, and we persuade. Using the gospel as the only message we have to give, it is sufficient. The gospel is wholly sufficient because all of us came into faith by that same gospel. So my encouragement to all of us this morning is, are you ready to go share your faith? with those who need to hear it. Are you? Today is the day for you to make that commitment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this word that Jesus calls all of us to judge our fellow believers in love, to hold them accountable to the faith. But Lord, we also recognize that we are to engage our world. And we know that they don't necessarily ascribe to the authority of the scripture like we do. And so our job is to pray for opportunities and to proclaim your truth, the gospel, and to be persuasive by being wise, by having our conversation full of grace and seasoned with salt, able to answer everyone if they ask the question, tell me why you have the hope of Jesus Christ. Lord, in this room, there are people who maybe have never trusted Jesus. They've never made the decision to once and for all decide to follow Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'll move in their heart this morning. And as we sing this invitational hymn, Lord, that you will cause them to come forward.
Father, I pray also that those who want to come join this fellowship of believers who want to really change the, the whole, be a part of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit here in West Ashley and surrounding areas in Charleston. We pray, Lord, that they'll come today and join. And Father, for those of us who are wrestling with anything that's going on in our lives, I pray that you will help us to come to you humbly in prayer and place it at the cross because only there can it be dealt with fully. Because you told us, cast all your cares upon me. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. 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 Amen.